speaker this morning, Father John Polsk, is a priest for the Society of Jesus and is currently the chaplain of the Jesuit High, of Jesuit High School in New Orleans, where he also teaches theology. He is a native of Connecticut, did his undergraduate at the University of Dallas. He entered the Central and Southern Province of Jesuits in 2011, and he was ordained a priest for the Society of Jesus this June. He holds a licentiate in sacred scripture from Boston College and a Master of Philosophy from the Institute of Christian Studies at the University of Toronto. Um, he has a special interest in St. Paul, and, um, and as we say, and his biggest accomplishment is he's my wife's brother. So we'll go ahead and welcome to the podium Father John Pulse. begin with a little prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, we ask you to bless our morning, and particularly open our hearts as we are well on our way into Advent as a Christian people. Stir in our hearts a longing for your coming, both at Christmas and at the end times. Let this stirring impel us to greater virtue, greater love, and greater witness of our hope, joy, and peace we find in you, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. All right, so <clears throat> I always like to start off my talk with a few jokes. And since I'm a Jesuit, one of them will be about the Jesuits. So first, we'll just do some general Catholic humor. So um, a Baptist, a Catholic, and a Charismatic all died in the same day. And they went to heaven, and they get to heaven's door, and they see a sign that says closed for renovations. And they kind of stare at it, and St. Peter walks out. And he says, hey, y'all, I'm really sorry. You, you got in, don't worry. Um, but we're closed for renovations, so um, I'm going to call and find you another space just for the night. He says, okay. So he calls up and he says, hey, Lou. Uh, hey, how's it going down there? Yeah, it's your friend Pete. He's like, I got three guests. Can you put them up for me? Can you do a favor? Uh, and Lou said, all right, Pete, I'll do you a little favor. Send them on down. I'll give them three rooms down here in heaven. So the Catholic, the Charismatic, and the Baptist all go down. And the night passes. In the morning, Pete gets a call. He says, hey, Lou, good morning. How's it going down there? And he says, Pete, you got to come take these people. They're causing all kinds of trouble. He said, what do you mean? It's been one night. He said, I know. But the Catholics running around forgiving everybody. The Baptists is converting everybody. And the Charismatics raising money to install AC down here. <laughs> got to get rid of them. <laughs> Next one. Dominican, a Franciscan, and a Jesuit were all brothers. Their father died. But before he died, he called them to his deathbed. And he said, now, my sons, I know you took a vow of poverty. But when I die, I want you to come to my funeral, and I want you to leave $1,000 in my casket out of love for your father. And the boys looked at each other, and they said, that's kind of weird, but OK. Their father passes away shortly after. They show up at the funeral. And they're all kind of looking at one another. And the Dominican goes first. And he walks up. And he takes $1,000 cash. And he puts it in the casket. And he says, Dad, it took me a while to raise this because of my vow of poverty. I don't know why you want me to do this, but I love you very much. And so there you go. And he goes away. The Franciscan walks up. 
and he's kind of shad, and he looks at the cast and he says, Dad, I could not raise that money. I think the people of God need it more, and I hope now that you're in heaven, you understand. I just can't give you that donation. I'm really sorry. And he's kind of moved a little teary-eyed, so the Jesuit walks up and he says, my brother, I will pay your share. And the Franciscan says, you will? And he says, yes. Takes out his checkbook, writes a $3,000 check, takes the $1,000 cash, puts the check in the casket, and walks away. Probably a true story. All right. (laughs) So what I want to do today is I want to talk a little about Advent, and I want to talk a little about St. Paul. The reason why I want to do that is because three of the four weeks of Advent, the second reading is from St. Paul and from his letter to the Romans. And so there's something liturgically that the church is offering to us as a people of God through St. Paul in this Advent season. I think it's worth teasing out a little bit of what he thinks maybe we could have and cultivate in our hearts around Advent. Now, as a child, I remember that fully understanding the season of Advent. It was almost like the Christmas preseason, to use a baseball analogy. Christmas talk, shopping, preparations were everywhere. But it wasn't Christmas yet. The excitement of Christmas was in the air, and yet as a child, I knew it still wasn't yet time to party and open gifts. Like that first preseason baseball game where the excitement for the season begins to dawn and yet you know the game in reference to the actual season doesn't matter. Well, as I got older and understood Advent a little bit more and the liturgical calendar a little bit more, my theology a little bit more, I realized that the preseason imagery that I concocted wasn't quite accurate. And yet, I grew and still felt a strong tension around celebrating Advent in a culture that doesn't know how to celebrate the season because they can't monetize it. They can't monetize Advent. And so you have Thanksgiving, and you have Christmas, and you have New Year's. And Advent gets lost in our wider culture. So this reality that Advent is discordant with our wider culture, which I'm sure we've probably all felt as Christians in the 21st century, leads to some challenges in celebrating it. Why? Well, after Thanksgiving, you have Black Friday. After Christmas, you have New Year's. And after New Year's, everybody goes on with their life. And yet as Christians, we have this Advent season and we have our Christmas season that extends for weeks after Christmas. And so we're not kind of in sync with our wider culture. And so people develop certain responses to this. I don't know if you've noticed, right? Christians have certain responses to this inherent tension to the season of Advent. Here are some of the attitudes that I've noticed Uh, both that I've shared myself as I've kind of gone through my uh, time as a Catholic, and also maybe I've observed. So the first, the innkeeper. This is a very common one, where the Advent season just slips by. We're so busy with our travels, with our work, with our Christmas prep. It's especially true if you're in academic life, because that's when finals happen. And so the buzz of study, the late nights, the stress of grades, and pretty soon it's December 23rd. So with a tinge of guilt, as Christmas comes around the corner, you're like, ah, I didn't really celebrate Advent. I was too busy to let Mary and Joseph in. The Pharisee. This part grows a bit bitter, sad, or angry at the discordant nature between Advent and our wider culture. And in particular, the heart is a little disdainful at any signs of Christmas prior to the fourth week of Advent. Badges of honor include decorating the tree as late as possible, 
not listening to Christmas music until December 25th, and general disdain or side comments about Christian family and friends who don't do likewise. Sometimes in humor, sometimes otherwise, they're the real ones who keep the Advent season. The Zacharias. The Zacharias try and embrace the spiritual nature of the season by keeping silence and meditation upon God's word in some way. They often look to be taught the meaning of Advent by sitting at the footsteps of Jesus in church, in prayer. Christ in Christmas is more than a slogan for them. It's an interior way of trying to keep the season in their heart. The Elizabeth and Marys, they eagerly prepare and await the coming of the birth of Christ through the embracing of the ordinary and the spiritual moments of the season together. They delight in this season and look for ways to mark it as they live their life with one another. Jesus is really the reason for the season for them, peppered with Advent calendars and candles and things like that. And then the wise guys. These are the hearts that are searching for Christ in the season, but they're not always sure where to find him. They're aware that the season is more than what it appears to be in our culture, and they're intent on trying to locate the Christ child in their journey of faith. The point being that the Advent season, especially in its discordant nature with our culture, causes in us spiritual and real responses as Catholics, some helpful, some not so much. I propose in this two-day, two-and-two-talk approach with St. Paul to look to him to ask us and to teach us what kind of attitudes he thinks are important to celebrate Advent, regardless of when Free goes up or Christmas music goes in the DVD player. Rather than seeing Advent as just a liturgical season, a season where we prove our love for how long we can delay our Christmas celebrations, St. Paul gives us some spiritual attitudes meant to pepper our Christian life regardless of the season. So let's look to St. Paul as our spiritual guide. As I share with you these insights around St. Paul, a spiritual principle I would like to keep in mind and I put on the handout is a saying from a saint that's become very important to me by St. Ignatius. And he says, it's not so much in knowing that satisfies the soul, but rather in relishing and tasting things in purity that nourishes our soul. So my hope as I offer St. Paul's thoughts through scripture is that it's not so much we get to know about him or know about his letters to the Romans or about his theology, but perhaps something in his letter can feed your prayer. Something in his take on Advent can touch your heart because that's what will really satisfy and nourish our souls as Christians. This came to me during my teaching when I got to sit and pray with St. Paul and study his life in a whole new way, not just here, but here. The image of him being lowered in the book of Acts, I always imagine the basket kind of small and he's kind of bustling out of it. The time it took for him between conversion and preaching, years, the humility and courage it must have took to change his mind and then to go back to the very same people he knew and to tell them about Jesus. So I hope as we go through these talks that your soul grabs on to some words of Paul, not so much to know about him, but to know about Christ, which St. Paul is preaching to us. And so our first talk this morning is called Paul's Vision for the Advent Season. We can look at St. Paul's life as an Advent life. What do I mean by that? 
Paul's encounter with the incarnation, with the incarnate word of God, came on the road to Damascus. Unlike the Magi, Paul didn't encounter the child Jesus. He encountered Christ, the risen one. And this encounter jolted Paul out of his mind, his heart, and his soul. As it says in the book of Acts, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so if he found any who belonged to the way, he might bring them to Jerusalem. And as he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So Paul was struck blind and spent three days in prayer before receiving baptism. That was his incarnation moment. His life leading up to that as a Jew was waiting for the Messiah. He did not believe that Jesus was the one, and so was persecuting this heretical sect in the eyes of the Jewish people. And then he has this moment by the tomb, by the cross, by the crib, and it changes everything for him. He writes about it in Galatians, in Philippians. As a practicing Jew in the Advent season of his life, Paul was waiting with full religious zeal, longing to meet the Lord. His entire life up to that moment was an Advent in his historical sense. And after the encounter with Jesus, Paul spends up to three years in the desert and off overlooked detail, rethinking his understanding of scripture, rethinking in light of Christ how to live out his faith. He never converts. He just becomes a deeper Jew who now recognizes Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And he takes that message to the Gentiles, especially in Romans. And he believes he's fulfilling his Jewish calling by sharing Jesus with the Gentiles. And we'll read some of those passages. But in a spiritual sense, and in his epistles, Paul lived out an Advent spirituality his whole life. Why? Well, because Christianity is not a faith of the past or of history. It has a history. But it is a faith of a person, Jesus Christ. And therefore, at its core, it's grounded in that encounter. And Paul longs to see Christ again post-meeting him. And therefore, his letters are tinged with an Advent spirituality that looks forward to the second coming of Christ. The Advent encounter that Paul has reorients his life and makes him long to look forward to meeting Christ. For example, in Philippians. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, blameless. Yet whatever gains that I had, I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. Everything is rubbish because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, 
and I regard everything about my former way of life as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and the righteousness of God based on faith. Those are powerful words for a man of his intellectual might and social status. He actually, the word is more than rubbish. Uh, it's poop. He regards everything as poop in reference in regards to knowing Christ Jesus. That's strong language for a man who knew how to write. And yet, after encountering Christ, his advent spirituality looks forward to meeting Christ again. And so if advent means a coming, and thus a subsequent waiting for an arrival, and you ask Paul, what is he waiting for? He would say the coming of the Lord. Paul had encountered Christ, had reoriented his life, lived and wrote with an ardent desire of seeing Christ again and Christ coming again. The last words of our scripture, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, describe Paul's missionary zeal, and it describes what the heart of the Advent season is. Our catechism says there's a twofold meaning. When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second. If we forget the reality that we are waiting for Christ's second coming, the Advent season can lose its power and force. Christians do not pretend to await Christmas as if Christ has yet to be born. We foster a spirit of waiting and preparation for Christmas, knowing Christ has yet to come again. But waiting is hard. We can fall asleep. We can forget that we actually are an Advent people, always waiting. And therefore, St. Paul's words in Romans, this Advent season, jolt us awake. So theme number one, Advent as a season to awake. Romans 13, 11. Brothers and sisters, you know the time. It is the hour for you to awake from sleep. For your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is advanced. The day is at hand. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in promiscuity and lust. Not in revelry rivalry or jealousy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh Advent is a time of awakening to what? well first awakening to what I just said that Christ will come again the day of the Lord when Paul says the day he means the day of the Lord the day of the Lord's second coming is nearer at hand than we first believed why should we wake up? Because the Lord's coming back. We live our life and our spirituality from that longing. Secondly, we awake to the ways that we have fallen asleep in our moral life. Paul uses the language of putting on Christ. The metaphor of his time that was used was clothing was described as the way you live, your virtue or vice. Paul says, throw off whatever you're wearing and go spiritually shopping. Go to Christ. Put on Christ. Leave behind the works of darkness. In our Christian tradition, John Cashin, 
Thomas Aquinas, St. Ignatius, etc. Sleeping was a word used to describe the spiritual vice of ascedia, of falling asleep. Too often this vice is translated as physical sloth, lying in bed all day. And that's true, there's an aspect to that. But it also has a spiritual connotation, where I've fallen asleep in my spiritual life. But you don't fall asleep in your spiritual life by falling asleep in your body. You are distracted by less than meaningful things to avoid doing the more important spiritual things. Social media, sports, etc. You are distracted by things that are not bad in themselves necessarily, but they keep you focused and away from your spiritual life. Why? Because you feel sad or lethargic in your prayer and your spiritual. And so to distract yourself from that feeling, which is uncomfortable, you turn to overly busy things that ultimately, again, are not bad, but are keeping you from growing closer to the Lord. Paul says, wake up. So where in our lives this past year have we gone asleep in our spiritual life? Where have we fallen asleep in our spiritual life? This Advent is a time to wake up there, to put on Christ in the places in our life that we have grown asleep. And how should we do that? St. Paul holds nothing back. He calls it fight. Put on the armor of God. He gets even clearer in Ephesians. Finally, be strong, brothers and sisters, in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers of the authorities and the cosmic powers of darkness. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so you may be able to withstand on the evil day, having prevailed, stand in the Lord. Stand, therefore, the belt at your waist with truth, Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Lace up the sandals in preparation for the gospel of peace. For Paul, the clothing metaphor is strong. The fighting metaphor is strong. For Paul, to be a Christian that has an Advent spirituality is to be aware of the spiritual warfare at hand. To be aware of the spiritual weapons at hand. And to deploy them. In Luke, at the announcing of the birth of Christ, lest we believe that this is Paul making something up, the shepherds see hosts of angels. Now, when I was a kid, I don't know about you, I would imagine the host of angels as a little baby with little wings showing up and basically giving everybody hugs. But in the Old Testament, God being described as the God of hosts is a military term. It is a military term of strength and intimidation. The birth of Christ with the heavenly hosts is a signaling of an invasion. God is on the move. Christ's military move is beginning against flesh, against the powers of the evil one. He's coming to save humanity. It's a fight. That fight goes all the way through Calvary and continues in our own day in the church. And so Advent is an awakening for St. Paul to this reality of our Christian lives. That our God, the God of hosts, the God of strength, what kind of strength? 
the strength of the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of peace. That is what Paul cautions us and challenges us to fight with. As we wake up to this, our lives are a spiritual fight, and that's an exciting thing. St. Anthony of the Desert, the founder, the precursor of monastic life, was in the desert, and he was struggling against particular sins, and he went to battle against his particular sins in his prayer, and it was very hard, and when the prayer finished, he cried out to the Lord. He won the battle on particular things and didn't give in to the temptation, and he said, Lord, where were you? I was fighting so hard. And the Lord came to him in prayer and he said, and I was watching and taking delight in you fighting. Because I love a good fight, Lord. I love a good fight. Wow. So we can think of our Advent season then by awakening to this reality of spiritual warfare. St. Ignatius gives myself a great image and he gives the church a great image of the evil one being a military commander. And you, your heart, your soul being a castle. And the evil commander looks at the castle for weakness, and he attacks there. Think of Lord of the Rings or Helm's Deep. There's one weak point in the Helm's Deep, and that's where the orcs go. Ignatius says, well, we know this. We know that the evil one's going to attack us where we are weak. If you are prideful, the devil's going to attack you. If you are lustful, the devil's going to attack you. If you are propensity to lie, the devil will attack you there. Ignatius says, this is great. We know where the enemy's going to go. So then we strengthen ourselves in this vice in our life. And St. Paul says, let's wake up to this. Let's wake up to where the battle will be taking place and to strengthen us at our weakest points through the help of God. Thirdly, Advent as a season to be shaken. Now bear with me on this one. We're going to do a little, little sketch. <clears throat> in Paul's thoughts, he is an apocalyptic writer. Now, we hear apocalypse and we see it through Hollywood movies, death, destruction, violence, blah, blah, blah. But literally, apocalypse, revelation, we might say in our scriptural language, means an unveiling, to be unveiled about something, to be seeing things in a new way. And so Paul, as an apocalyptic writer, is unveiling something for us and drawing our attention to this reality. Now, at his time, as a Jew, there was apocalyptic writing, of which he was a part. And it basically did something like this. There's the present world marked by sin and suffering. There is a future world that God will bring about, that the prophets predicted. And those worlds are separate. And at one point, the new world will come in, and the old world will pass away. And Paul is conscious of this in Romans 8 and in Romans 8 to 18 and Romans 8 22. He talks about the world that will be passing away and the world that's being recreated. We groan and longing for a new world, he says. However, because of Christ, Paul's take on this old world, new world is radically different from his Jewish contemporaries. The inbreaking of this new world has already happened for Paul. These two worlds now exist in overlapping circles. Where does he say that? Second Corinthians. <clears throat> from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. 
So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away, and everything now is becoming new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So for Paul, the newness of the next world has already begun in Christ, and that was new compared to his contemporaries. Why does that matter? It matters because Christians live in the in-between world our entire lives. We are being renewed, and yet we still taste the effects of sin and death. And so our entire life then is marked by this advent in which we are longing to be totally renewed in the second coming. We've tasted real renewal, and yet we still struggle under not yet being totally renewed. At least me, I don't know about you. We still struggle with sin. We taste suffering. We taste death, persecution, etc. But we taste those things in hope because Christ has come, and in hope because he will come again. And through this suffering that's going on, which is even better, the renewal is happening. It's not wasted stuff. That's why Paul can say, I want to know the sufferings of Christ. That's a renewal process. So Christians are infused with an Advent life. It's not a world that is yet to come totally. Our world now is not totally corrupt and rot, but there's this inbreaking of the world, and the Lord is acting on it now, which infuses us with hope. Advent is meant to shake us to this reality, to shake us to the nature of reality about our identity, shaken about our limitations, and shaken upon our total dependence upon God. We are creatures who are in total need of God, who have been created out of love for a purpose. Loved sinners, children of God, heirs to Christ's kingdom. St. Paul tells us to put on Christ. That's a strong metaphor about our identity. Where do we do that in Paul's writing? Sacraments, baptism, the Eucharist. In the quiet of that first Christmas, the Christ child came and lay in a manger, a place of feeding. And in the quiet of that night, he began to draw humans to himself, to be fed and to worship, and then to go out and to serve. The first Christmas and the first Advent that precedes reveals to us the depth of our identity in Christ, our need and dependence upon God to worship and to be fed, and our challenge to go out and to do mission. And so finally, Paul thinks that our Advent should be a season to wait well, in which James, the only other second reading we get in Advent, accomplishes. Advent as a season of waiting. Christianity as a season of active waiting. Some of Jesus' most memorable parables speak about this. The wise virgins, not knowing when the master will come. The good Samaritan, when the man who brings him to the innkeeper says, I will come back and care for him one day. And the list goes on. To be Christian is to have an Advent outlook on our lives, to live in hopeful expectation, to wait well. Pope Emeritus Benedict says in his Advent reflection, every one of us, therefore, especially in this season, which prepares us for Christmas, can ask himself, what am I waiting for? What, at this moment of my life, does my heart long for? And how do I wait? 
And so we can look at the Advent icons in our scripture of waiting and draw up places for our prayer. Waiting like Mary. Mary waits with a heart that ponders or holds all these things in her heart. Every time Mary has an encounter with God, it usually includes a promise. Luke tells us when this happens, she holds things in her heart. The Annunciation, meeting Simeon in the temple, the finding of the Lord in the temple. Mary lives her advent, her waiting, by letting these mysterious encounters with God germinate in her heart. How have you let your encounters with God germinate in your heart as you wait? Hannah, when her life encounters suffering and change, the loss of her husband, her children, she takes her waiting to the temple of God. There she waits and offers all that she has to the Lord in prayer, especially her hurts. How do we wait with our sufferings and our pains? Do we wait like Hannah, turning those into moments of grace and prayer? Simeon. He waits in the certain hope that he will see the consolation of Israel, as scripture tells us, never doubting that God's promise would be fulfilled, but not knowing how. He must have been shocked that it was a child who expressed her light in him. He waits with a heart full of joy and trust at the mysterious and ever new promise of God, waiting to see it in his life. And then there's St. Paul. He awaits on mission, which will be the subject of our second reflection. So in conclusion, our Advent theme, Advent and the nature of the Christian life as an Advent. Advent as a season of focusing on the incarnation so as to foster in us delight and love at that moment of God's work and a longing for a second chance. Advent as a season to await to be shaken, to enter into spiritual warfare, and to wait with joy and hope. St. Paul was the first written witness to the Mass. After he gives us the words of institution in Corinthians, he adds a totally unique phrase found nowhere else in Scripture about the Mass. He writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We say these words at the memorial acclamation at many masses. We proclaim your death, O Lord. We profess your resurrection until you come again. The mass itself is an expression of an Advent heart and an Advent shape. An expression of a longing for Christ to come again and a celebration of his coming to us in the Eucharist. The mass is both an Advent in that we encounter the Lord and it is an Advent waiting and longing that we desire the full consummation of the end times with the Lord. The Mass teaches us about having Advent hearts all year round. The Mass is our daily shaping, our daily awakening, and our daily death. So let us pray that our liturgies, so deeply influenced by St. Paul, remind us of as Christ's incarnation and stirs up in us hearts that long for a second coming so that we might have Advent hearts all year round. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. We were going to allow questions, and I have a couple microphones if anyone had any questions they wanted.
Wait, wait for the microphone. <laughs> I think you said something um, about Paul not being converted. Absolutely. Would you go in a little more detail about yeah, that? Yeah, no problem. So um, conversion, right, as we tend to cash it out in the modern day, is to convert from one faith to another. There's no evidence in Paul's writing he stopped being a Jew. He never left Judaism behind. Why? Jews were waiting for the Messiah. So Paul's embracing of Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. So if you met Paul in the first century, you said, what faith are you? He said, I'm a Jew who believes in Jesus. The first Christians were Jews. Christianity as a term only comes about in the later centuries when the Jews and Christians split and there becomes infighting. The first hundred years, we were the followers of the way. What's the way? We're Jews who follow Christ. And so um, for a long time, our historical record talks about Paul's conversion and his disparagement of the Jewish people. There's no evidence in the writings that he ever did that. We'll talk about that in a separate talk. His, his writing in Romans is, uh, I think he's crying as he's writing the last part of that epistle. As he's looking at his Jewish brothers not embracing Christ, and it breaks his heart. Because he thinks they're missing something about their own faith. And so conversion is a change of faith? No. A conversion as entering Christ? Yes. So it depends if you cash out the term conversion. So is that like a messianic Jew nowadays? Is there such a thing like they believe in the Messiah, but they're still Jewish? Well, so for the Jewish people now, they're still waiting for the Messiah. So Paul would, would disagree with them on that. He'd say the Messiah's already come. But even in his own day, there were groups of Jewish people and had different responses. We see this in the Gospels. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those are different groups of Jewish people who have takes on the resurrection, who have takes on the Old Testament. And Jesus tried to preach into those groups, right? So Paul comes out of one of those, and he embraces Jesus as the Messiah, and he preaches it to his Jews, his brothers and sisters first, and then to the Gentiles. Um, so there are Jews today that don't see Jesus as the Messiah, and so they're still living in that expectation that the Messiah will come. Yeah, but, but a Messianic Jew would not be Paul, no, because Paul has just found the Messiah. A Messianic Jew is still in I love this idea about being an Advent people, and I think especially because we often hear we're an Easter people. So what do you think about how we, practically speaking, in our spiritual life kind of reconcile those two things, like the waiting with like knowing how it's already going to end? Oh, yeah, Easter people, yeah. Um, I think pretty easily. I think the, the Easter people focuses on meeting the resurrected Christ. If you've never met the resurrected Christ, you're going to be a pretty sad Christian because your life is still going to be tainted by exclusively the cross. Right? The resurrected body of Jesus has the wounds. So it's the cross with the joy. So if you don't have the joy, you're going to be the apostle blocking out the room with praise. I mean, that's our proper message, right? But why are we an Advent people as an Easter people? Because we're waiting for Christ to come back. And so we're a resurrected people that lives in joy, but still remember we're waiting. If you forget that you're waiting, this world becomes everything. You risk incarnating the kingdom now with cutting off from, from the world that is to come, the big believers. And so we can't be a resurrected people without remembering that we're also still longing for Christ to come back. This world is still not everything. So I think that's how you bring those two together. We'll do one more and then we'll take a little break. Yeah. What did people think uh, St. Paul was doing in the three years? Was it more personal revelation with Christ? Was it just really deep study of the Old Testament? Because he didn't, he 
didn't necessarily have access to all the stories of the gospel. He had, yeah, he had zero access. Yeah. Um, in fact, he dies before they're written down. Um, no, there's no good answer on that. Uh, he doesn't talk about it. He gives these glimpses, right? So Galatians and, and Acts, he talks about going away for years to the, to the desert and, and into Damascus, living, probably living and working, praying. I mean, he's totally rethinking his life. Um, my guess is he's probably consulting with the scriptures of the day, so Isaiah. He uses Isaiah and Romans all over the place, but he uses it in ways that only somebody who's met Jesus can. So he's probably doing that. Uh, he's probably talking to Christians, meeting them, and he says he does go to Peter and to the, the church in Jerusalem after those years, confers with them, and he goes out on mission. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a long retreat experience, but there's no, there's no clear, there's no evidence of what he's doing, so we can only pray and guess. All right, we're going to take a five to ten minute break. Reminder, restrooms are through those doors. There's still more coffee, a few more pastries in the back. So have at it.